Titus chapter 1, Grace and Godliness. We're doing the second message in the book of Titus. Uh, It's part of the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters, required reading for pastors. And the letter is about leadership. And we are all hopefully wanting to improve in our leadership uh, abilities and skills. Um, As we have studied the book of Titus, we've realized that grace comes first before godliness And I told you that when we picked the graphic, we picked a tree. If you look up at the screen for a second, the trunk of the tree is grace. And grace permeates three areas of life that are talked about in the book of Titus. And they are the church, the family, and the world. So the first chapter is going to deal with the church, where the grace of God and the godliness that springs from grace should be going out into the world. Our message, the church of Jesus Christ, the grace that we have experienced goes out through the church of God, the collective people of God. And that church is led by leaders. And those leaders are called elders or pastors or even bishops. And that's what's going to be talked about today. And Paul is going to address the leaders of the church and he's going to talk about characteristics or attributes that we should see in them. It's not going to be about them being perfect because if there was any requirement for perfection, there would be no elders. It's not going to call for sinlessness, but it is going to call for a group of men to be above reproach, to be blameless. And that's what we're going to get into. We're only going to go verses 5 through 9 this morning. I'm going to read the first five verses. If you follow along with me, and we're going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Paul, a bondservant of God, Titus 1.1, and an apostle of Jesus Christ... For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. One of the key words there is godliness. In the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, remember Titus was a Gentile believer, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Father, as we get into the Word of God now, we want to get the Word of God deep into us. Thank you that your Word is alive, powerful, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May you speak into our lives. We know you are going to right now. And we want to be receptive. We want to have ears to hear what you would say to us and really line up our lives with your word. So we pray that you'll speak now, add and take away from what I've prepared and speak to your people, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Grace and godliness. So we defined godliness last week. The Greek word is eusebia. And I told you there was a church father named Eusebius. The Greek word is eusebia. And godliness is a God-centered life or a God-dominated life. The only way you can be a godly person is to experience the grace of God. Grace is how we, were get, we got saved. We get saved by grace through the channel of faith. But grace also has another sense, and here's what it is. Grace is what God dispenses to believers. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Paul prayed three times about a thorn in his flesh and Jesus said to him, my 
grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. We come, when we approach Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we approach a throne of grace, that we might receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Now, we're saved by grace, but grace is also a strength that God gives to us. We get saved by grace, and God keeps us by his grace and empowers us by his grace. So in order to do what I'm going to talk to you about here in these uh, few verses, we're going to need all the grace that we can get. But if you are a man in this audience uh, this morning, in this congregation, and you aspire to leadership, and you should because you've been called to be a leader, this is the mark that you should be trying to hit. And this is also a mark really for anybody in the church because these are going to be high attributes that God calls us to. But these are the attributes of what it looks like to be a leader. 1 Timothy 3.1 is the, there's a parallel passage in, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, if a man aspires to the office of the overseer, it is a beautiful work that he desires to do. I believe that God puts a desire in our hearts. That desire for me came very early. I got saved, I had a lot of baggage in my life, but almost immediately I felt a call to the ministry. Almost immediately, I felt a call to preach, and God has been working on me for, you know, a couple of decades now, actually three decades. I got saved in my early 20s. I got called into the ministry about 20 years ago, and it's been an awesome journey. I had no idea, really, what to expect when I first signed up, when I first walked down the aisle. When I had a passion to preach, I had no idea what was ahead of me, the odyssey that God would take me on, but it is a great thing and a great ride and I'll tell you what there's nothing like it than serving the king of kings and the lord of lords you don't have to be perfect to qualify as a leader but you have to be passionate about what your life is going to be about what direction do you want to go the bible talks to us a lot about purpose but you have to have something that you're aiming for and in our society I kind of wonder how many, even in our church culture are, culture, are aspiring to the pastorate, are aspiring to the office of the overseer? If you are, it's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's a noble thing. I believe it's the highest calling on the planet, but it's not an easy calling. Some people, frankly, step away from the call of leadership because they don't want to be inconvenienced. Francis Schaeffer, who was a philosopher, Christian philosopher of years past, said these words, quote, Leadership aversion for the sake of personal peace and affluence as one of the primary goals, goals of most people in our culture is not biblically defensible, close quote. It is not biblically defensible for you to make a choice that you will not lead because you don't want to be inconvenienced or you don't want to risk anything. Now, I do understand this. I understand that sometimes when people put their heart out there, and their heart gets stepped on, it's hard. Sometimes we want to pull back. Sometimes people want to pull back from the church. There's a lot of people that have been burned by churches and even burned by pastors, disappointed with the, the church or the expression of the church. But may I suggest to you that the greatest thing that you could do, you may need to heal from some of that, is to get back in the game, is to put your heart out there again. You're going to risk it being stepped on, but Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to what? To receive. Look, you can either sit on the bench your whole life or get in the game. 
And I would just say this to you. If you want to be a leader, here is some of the prerequisites, and these are the things to aim for. There's an old saying. It's been around the church for quite some time. He who aims at nothing is bound to hit it. So I pray that this will give you, if you're a young man in the audience today, in the congregation, I pray this will give you some goals. Now remember, all of this stems from grace. The trunk of the tree is grace. R. Kent Hughes was talking about the old and new legalism. There was an old saying in the church of years gone by, and it was the old legalism. It said, if you're going to be a true Christian, you don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. Now, I uh, have experienced a good amount of life. I never met a girl who chewed tobacco. I think that would scare me away from a girl. However, I knew a lot of guys that chewed tobacco. But the new legalism says now, and here's what it looks like, you got to be in touch with the culture. So you need to smoke and drink and chew and goes, go with girls who do so you can relate more to the culture. You need to cuss a little. Cut it up a little. This is the modern church. This is what some of the modern church says now. If the world's going to really relate to you, you, you need to cuss a little like they do. No, you don't. No, you don't. I think the church just needs to be real. Amen? We need to tell people, look, I'm not perfect. If you cut me, I'll bleed. I have same issues. I have loved ones that die. Sometimes my body doesn't feel good, and I'm a Christian. Get me on the racquetball court and I will die trying to beat you. However, I am a Christian, unashamedly a Christian. I appreciate some of the feedback, you know, we get from a guy like Tim Tebow. You know, he's gotten a lot of criticism, but I'll tell you this about Tim Tebow. He's never hidden who he is. You might, you know, a lot of people don't like him. Oh, he's trying to be a Christian over here. Well, at least he's trying to be a Christian. In, in public places, at least he's not ashamed of what he believes. The church is the primary vehicle by which we carry out the message of the gospel. And look, the world, I think a lot of the world is hoping that it's true. Don't you? I know a lot of the world, you know, jumps on the fallen, you know, uh, person who claims to be something. Amen. But I also know this. I know that there's a lot of people who are watching our lives hoping that the message is true. And one of the primary ways that we give evidence to the truth that there's hope for change, there's a God, and there's heaven, is through our lives. Our lives are not perfect, but I am not the man I used to be. And I would venture to say, I'm sure you're not the person that you used to be. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There is a hope. There's hope for you to change. God has changed me, and he can change you. Look, nobody's arrived but I think of a line from a movie that's not theologically correct, but it's called Field of Dreams. How many of you saw the movie Field of Dreams? Great baseball movie, right? Not, theologi not theologically correct. People, spirits don't live in the corn in Iowa, okay? Let's just get that out. However, when Kevin Costner is playing catch with his dad at the end of the movie and he realizes that it's his father, he says to his father, is, is there a heaven? And his dad responds, oh, yeah. The church has been called to say to the world, oh yeah, there's a God, there's a heaven, there's a hope, 
There's hope for change. And one of the ways that we do that is through godliness. We define godliness as a God-centered life, a God-dominated life. The opposite of godliness is a word that Pastor Michael coined last Sunday. I hope you all wrote it down. It is selfliness. Or selfiness. Everybody remember that one? All right, so hopefully you've forever captured that image. Right? Godliness is a God-centered life and when you are living a godly life, you help people to see who God is. You don't just live a godly life to live a godly life. You don't just live a godly life in some, you know, on the top of some hill somewhere or in a monastery. You live a godly life to give Christians hope, the body of Christ, and to give unbelievers a glimpse at our Savior. Amen? Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is the way that God has uh, decided to, to do things. He could have used angels and so forth, but he uses primarily the church. And so Paul's talking about the church and godliness in the church, and he says, for this reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete. Now, Lisa, if you don't mind, I have a few pictures of Crete. I want to just show you what it is. Crete is an island kind of off the coast of Greece. It's in the, the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's about 160 miles long. So if, you take a, if you're able to look up here and take a look. So there would be several locations on the island where there could be churches or towns or cities. 160 miles long. I don't know what that is. You know, about here to maybe what? Escondido. So think of it. It's a long island with a lot of stopping points. In fact, Paul shipwrecked on the island of Crete and had a stopover at a place called Fair Havens and was warning them not to risk it but anyway he experienced this island we don't know how all the churches got here we don't learn a lot about ministry in crete but if you go on to the next one just to give you an idea of just kind of how a portion of this one of the beaches off the island and so this is the place where uh, the instruction comes that titus is to uh, he was left behind for this reason for what reason that you might look at verse 5 set in order what remains or the new king james says the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city or every town, or you could say every church, as I directed you. I want you to notice that the word elders is plural, and city is singular, every town. Elders in every church, usually, and this is going to be actually all the time you see this, you're going to see a plurality of elders in singular churches. What that means is that the New Testament model for leadership, without exception, is a plurality of elders for every single church, okay? A team of elders for each church. The word elder is presbyteros in Greek. It's where we get the idea of the presbytery, and it technically just simply means someone who is older. Uh, there were elders in Israel. They were typically the older men, and it can mean an older man, or it can mean a man who is mature, Mature in his beliefs, mature in his faith. I was made the elder of a church at 26. I'm not sure what they were thinking. But I had a lot of zeal and passion and growing knowledge. I didn't have any gray hair, so I painted my hair silver. Just so I'd kind of fit in. But anyway, but here's the idea. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be older by age, but it means that you have to have a level of maturity. Presbyteros is the Greek word. Now, you notice that Paul says, I want you to appoint elders. Uh, some people have taken this that because the word appoint means simply that, that, you know, there, there shouldn't be any congregational 
involvement in the selection of elders. However, I would say even though I think other elders are the best ones to pick out and appoint other elders, the congregation must be involved. Because the congregation is the place where someone grows their reputation. So the documentary evidence, this is how scholars would put it, would say that congregational affirmation is implied in these teachings because the congregation is the one who can give testimony to the reputation of a man. And these attributes are going to certainly require that a man's life is lived out in front of people. The churches in Crete needed to literally be straightened out. There was a lack of leadership or poor leadership We can see this in verse 11. If you skip up for a second, there were men who were teaching false doctrine. Uh, Go back to verse 10. They were rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, says Paul to Titus, because they are upsetting or ruining whole families or households, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. We'll get into the details of this next week, but there was a false teaching afoot on the Isle of Crete, And Paul said, we have to deal with this. And what was happening was there were leaders, apparently in some of these towns and churches, that were teaching false doctrine. And false doctrine is is a cancerous thing. When when you're talking about essential Christian doctrine, there is another gospel, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, another Jesus. And if people re... uh, let's, Let's put it this way. If people take our terms, Jesus, the gospel being saved, and redefine them, it sounds okay at the beginning. Somebody might say, I believe in Jesus. But do you know that there's a Jesus in Jehovah's Witnesses? There's a Jesus in Mormonism? The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses is Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest creation of God, who, uh, who didn't physically rise from the dead, and I could fill in the blanks for you. The Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of the devil, Lucifer, just the savior of this planet. There are many planets where there needs to be saviors. They believe that you can become the God of your own planet. They say they believe in God. They say they believe in Jesus, but they redefine our term, our terms. I'm not talking about peripheral issues like what you believe about the second coming, timing of the rapture, or even arguments about modes of baptism and that kind of thing. I'm talking about a central Christian doctrine. And what's at stake here is that whole families were being ruined, is the word. Whole families were being upset. False doctrine has implications or consequences. People say, well, we shouldn't argue about doctrine. Well, what else are we going to argue about? Doctrine means teaching. And if you teach the wrong thing, you could be wrong enough to lose your soul. You know, the devil's been around for a long time. And he's done most of his effective work, not in atheism, but in false religion. Folks, you need to understand this. Most of the world is religious. Darwin is a Johnny-come-lately the last couple of hundred years. Most of the world has been deceived by polytheism, false religion, redefinitions of God, saying that there are multiple gods and goddesses and pantheons of this and that. And look, people get upset when you start talking about this stuff. But look, this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that there are people who are empty talkers and they must be silenced. Ouch. They must be shut down. And unfortunately, this is not talking about outside the church. This is talking about inside the church. This is talking about Christian churches on the island of Crete where there was a vacuum of leadership. And here's part of the problem. When there's a vacuum of leadership, when good godly men do not step up 
into the elder pastor roles, a vacuum is created. And sometimes that vacuum allows the wrong leaders to get in. Would you guys agree with me that there's a lot of house cleaning that needs to happen in the modern church? Now, look, there's a lot of good churches, right? A lot of good godly men that are teaching truth. But there's a lot of places, and you can talk to people, they'll, they'll do a circuit around our city. And there's a lot of churches, you don't even have to bring your Bible because they ain't going to preach it. Okay? I'm not trying to be overly critical. I'm just saying that Paul is saying to uh, Titus, we got to do some house cleaning. We got to clean up the house. And I think, generally speaking, an uh, application could be made to our Christian lives just personally. Sometimes we got to clean up our lives. we got to get some things in order. If any of you are involved in the business world and you're trying to do sales or you're in a managerial position, that's one of the first things that business trainers say to you. Get organized. Get cleaned up. Get things in order, man. How much more in your spiritual life? Is your house in order? Can I ask you directly? Is your spiritual life in order? What do you do during the week to work on your spiritual life? What's your devotional life look like? How many Bible studies are you in? Do you read your Bible during the week? Or is most of what you get the world's message? Then you come here for 50 minutes and hear the Bible, and that's good, but that's not going to do it. Sometimes we got to do some, we got to do some restoration. We got to do some house cleaning. There's some unfinished business. I often tell people at memorial services that, you know what, if your heart is still beating and you're here and you're listening, you still have breath in your lungs. So you can still get stuff done. If there's a relationship that needs to be healed, if there's someone that needs to hear that you love them and you haven't said it, if there's some way you need to make amends, or if there's some ministry that you've been called to, work for the Lord yet undone, now's the time to do it. Amen? Now's the time to do it. The devil's going to tell you tomorrow, God says, get your house in order now. I want to use you. Now that doesn't preclude a period of growth. We all have to grow, but you understand what I'm saying. Paul says, I want you to put things in order. The NIV says, straighten out what was left unfinished, verse 5, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now the word for elder is, as I mentioned, is presbyteros. It speaks of an older man. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about some of these characteristics. I want you to notice in verse 7, we'll skip over verse 6 for a second, he calls the same person an overseer. So if you're interested, the word for elder is presbyteros. The word for overseer is episkopos, where we get the word episcopalian. Sometimes it's translated bishop, but it technically means an overseer. So here's how it works. The elder is kind of the mature description of the same person. The episkopos, or overseer, is what he does. He oversees the church. And there's one more term called poimeno. And poimeno means a shepherd or a pastor. I'll show you really quick. Turn to the book of Acts. Go to chapter 20. Acts 20, look at verse 17 with me. This is a good uh, cross-reference to see three terms used for the same office. It's found in Acts 20, verse 17, and here's what it says. From Miletus, Acts 20, 17, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Acts 20, verse 17, there's the word presbyteros, the mature, older gentleman. He called the elders of the church plural to himself. Skip ahead to verse 27 of Acts 20. Paul says to these elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or counsel of God. 
Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They're elders in verse 17. They're called overseers, episkopos, in verse 28. And they are called to what? To shepherd the church of God, same verse, 28, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. Verse 17, elder. Verse 28, you have uh, overseer and pastor. So this is the same office. You've heard people try to make the argument that an elder or a pastor or a bishop or overseer are the same person. It just describes that he's mature, that he's overseeing the church, and his main job is to feed and lead the sheep that belong to Christ. It's his church. He purchased them. Go back to Titus. So you can see that these are interchangeable terms. This is describing the same person. A pastor is technically an elder. An elder is technically an overseer. Uh, they're, they're interchangeable terms for the same office. Now Paul is going to describe what this person should look like. He is, verse 6, Titus 1, to be above reproach. And he is, notice in verse 7, also called to be above reproach. So back in Titus, look at verse, the repetition, above reproach in verse 6, above reproach in verse 7. He must be, verse 7, above reproach. This is an absolute necessity. He cannot be reproachable. What does that mean? It does not mean that he needs to be sinless. If he needs to be sinless, there are going to be no elders on the planet. But he needs to be blameless. What does that mean? It means that in his observable conduct in life, there is no open charge that could be rendered against him that would stick. So someone could accuse an elder pastor of a number of different things. It's not so much the accusation. It's whether or not it's true. The literal language of above reproach in Greek means he cannot be held. He cannot be held the bars behind the bars of an accusation that would be true. He's true to his wife, for example. He is true to his calling. He doesn't cheat on his taxes or rip off people for money, etc., etc. You fill in the blanks. He is not literally able to be held. He is unreprovable. He has a good testimony, 1 Timothy 3, inside and outside the church. In verse 7, notice he is called God's steward. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. The word steward is familiar to a lot of us. It means an overseer. Yeah, Joseph was the steward in Potiphar's house in the book of Genesis. He was given control of what belonged to Potiphar, but he managed it. It was Potiphar's. He was simply managing it. The elders of a church or pastors of a church manage the church for the ultimate uh, leader of the church, the ultimate shepherd who is Christ. We are under shepherds, under the chief shepherd. Amen? So we are to shepherd as he would have a shepherd. We are to submit to his authority and to lead the church that he purchased with his own blood. We are simply stewards. It's not my church. The church does not belong to the elders. It belongs to Jesus. But I've been made a steward of it. Just like I've been made a steward of my family and a steward of my money. And the requirement is that I manage it well. In verse 6, as he goes through the characteristics of this man, he is to be the husband of one wife. There's been a lot of debate about what this means. Does this mean that an elder could not have gone through a divorce? I don't think so. The Bible teaches that there are such a thing as biblical divorces. And there are many good men who were divorced for one reason or another, or even divorced before they became Christians, or fought hard to keep a marriage afloat, and it didn't happen. Not automatically disqualified because they went through a divorce. 
Neither does this exclude a single man. After all, when Paul's writing, he's probably not married. Titus may not be married, and Timothy may not be married. The husband of one wife is the norm, but singleness has its advantages for ministry, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, because it means you don't have to worry about a family and children and providing for all of that. You're kind of more free. It's not, this is the norm. It's not a requirement to be married, but marriage is one of the best places to identify whether someone is a serious and true leader as a Christian. If I wanted to find out someone was a Christian, I would not ask their pastor. I would ask their wife, said D.L. Moody. Right? I mean, you could fool your pastor. You can come up with the Christianese, but you can't fool your wife. So the home becomes the best testing ground for leadership. He is to be a one-woman man, is how Greek experts have said this should be rendered. His commitment and fidelity to his wife is unquestioned. He's not a philanderer. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He has a reputation for faithfulness to his bride. Let me ask you. How can someone be faithful to the bride of Christ and show fidelity to her, the church, and her message if he can't even be faithful to his own bride? That's the, that's the comparison. In a world that is filled with people who are cheating on one another and sleeping around and everybody's making it acceptable, the Bible says no. The Bible says you show fidelity to your wife. You be true to her. By the way, I'll just say this, and this isn't going to be politically correct, but this is what it is. This means that the position of an elder, pastor, or overseer is for men only. I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. Women were the backbone of the church and have been for 2,000 years. We can see that in the resurrection accounts. But God has an order. He has roles to play, and men are only to be in the role of elder, pastor, and overseer. So there are churches churches that we would respect doctrinally and be in agreement probably in a number of different areas. But how can an elder be the husband of one wife if she's female? I mean, it's just simple logic. Jesus chose 12 apostles. They were all male. The supporting group was largely filled with women, and they were more faithful than the 12 men. So don't ask me why he just chose men to be in these positions, because maybe women could do it better. I don't know. Some of you ladies are like, oh, yeah. Don't say you don't know, Pastor Michael, right? <laughs> but men have been given headship in the home and in the church. To do what? Not to dominate, but to die. We're supposed to die for our wives. We're supposed to love the church. We're supposed to be servants of the church. This is not about domineering. This is about dying. This is about using the gifts that you've been given to be a leader in your house and hopefully in the church. The fact that uh, he is the husband of one wife means he's a male, obviously, but that he is a one-woman man. And there have been many, many leaders in the church. We are familiar with the stories that have fallen because of sexual sin. So we all have to be on guard. We know the enemy works in these areas. We know he's trying to divide households. We know he loves it when a pastor stumbles so that the media can jump on that story and try to discredit the church. So we have to be on guard. Devil with the blue dress on. Let me hear you say it. <laughs> Devil with the blue dress. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Anyway, all right, let's keep going. He has to have children who believe. Second requirement, children who believe. The word believe is a Greek word which means faithfulness 
And the word for children is tekna in Greek. Most scholars say that it, it means most of the time a child under your roof, still under your authority. Now this, is, this has been a hard one because people can get hypercritical on these and they think all the children need to line up and hello sir, nice to meet you. And, and if there's ever a moment where that child's running around or if the parent was ever caught on camera going like this, they're automatically disqualified. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not talking about exceptions. We're talking about patterns. We're not talking about if a family has five children and one has become a prodigal, but the family is committed to the things of God. We're talking about a pattern. If in that family there's no believing child, they're out of control, there's no semblance of respect for authority, it doesn't seem like anybody in that household really believes or lives out their faith, you might not want to make that person an elder in the church. They have to start with their house. Our first mission field, of course, is our children. If we can't win our children, and of course, we can't control their hearts always, but we want to pour into them. We want to build our lives around the things of Jesus Christ. If you're a man sitting here this morning, let me just say to you, the Bible says that the elder is to be no newly planted person. He's not to be a new convert, but you don't have to stay a new convert. You can grow. And you can grow and aspire to the office of leadership. You can grow in terms of your own personal leadership in your house if you never become an elder. But the point is that we need to grow and we need to ground our family in the truth. I believe it's up to you, gentlemen, speaking man to man, that you make sure, if you're a newly married man or you're considering marriage, that your, your relationship is built on the foundation of Christ. And I would say to you, if I did premarital counseling with you, that church and your participation in the things of God is non-negotiable. I'm not talking about if you go on vacation or you're sick. I'm talking about the normal pattern of your life should be centered, that's what godliness is after all, in the things of God. And if it's not, you got some work to do. That doesn't mean you can't clean up your house and all of that. But you know what? This is the call for those who would aspire to this office. Children who believe, not accused of dissipation, which speaks of excess or rebellion, which is pretty obvious. Verse 7 says, the overseer, that's episkopos, must be above reproach as God's steward. He's not to be self-willed. Self-willed is the opposite of being God-willed or godliness. And here's a list of things that it says about this particular uh, call. And there's, uh, there's going to be bookends about not being self-willed, but being self-controlled. There's five negatives, six positives in rapid fire. He's not to be self-willed. If you're taking notes, number one. It can speak of being overbearing or arrogant. A shepherd cannot be headstrong or autocratic. He must lead with God's will, God's power. He can have the authority of Christ, but it doesn't mean he doesn't listen to people or he steps all over people. That's not good leadership. Good leadership is not stepping all over people. It's opening your heart. It's listening to people, but it's still leading well. He is to be a man that is not quick-tempered. If you walk into Home Depot and see Pastor Michael choking the checker, you gave me the wrong amount of change, what's wrong with you? You might want to write an email to the rest of the leadership of the church and say, uh, you might want to give Pastor Michael a break or something. <laughs> Orgilon is the Greek word, not soon angry in the King James. He's not to be the kind of man who flares up in temper and people never know what to expect of him. He's not to be on the 91 freeway. Uh, you know, speaking through a closed window, you know, rah, rah, rah. not to be in the church parking lot, you know, uh, cutting people off, 
Hopefully you're saying, go ahead, go ahead, right? Hopefully the 91 freeway is not the ultimate test because I would be disqualified as well, just to give you all hope. He's not to be addicted to wine. Third thing that it says in verse 7. Not to be addicted to wine literally means he's not to linger over wine. Um, wine drinking is something that the church debates, and I'll just say this to you. If wine drinking uh, excluded someone from leadership, then Jesus and the apostles aren't going to be on the elder board. However, the idea here is he doesn't linger over wine, or literally he's not given to wine. He's given to God. If you're dependent on drinking all the time, or you need it to help you in some way, you might want to revisit your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18, but be, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. He's given to the Spirit. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have liberties, but it, it does mean that he's not lingering over wine. He doesn't mismanage his life for the sake of wine or intoxication, obviously, would disqualify him. Number four, look at verse seven. He's not to be pugnacious. Now, I looked up the Greek there, and pugnacious means anyone who owns a pug. <laughs> All right, so... You're disqualified if you own a pug. Anybody own a pug? Nobody at first service? Some, one gentleman in the courtyard said, I was going to raise my hand just out of you know, sheer sympathy because they were probably afraid. But if you own a pug, you're disqualified. I'm just kidding. You're not. It's not what it means. It means that someone who is violent, it literally can speak of someone who's a bruiser, contentious, quarrelsome, severe, uh, Look at verse 7. He's not to be fond of sordid gain or pursuing dishonest gain. He can't be a man who takes advantage of people for money. Look, this is, this is a problem in the modern church, is it not? Where money pours into ministries and there's no checks and balances. So people you know, are, are driving a couple expensive cars and they're making promises to people and there's been primetime TV shows that have exposed ministries who throw prayer requests away that they ask for but keep the money. Staying in hotel rooms that cost ten dollars and $15,000 a night on ministry money. I'm sorry. That's not good stewardship. There are, there are people who, for the sake of the ministry, and this is what L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, said. He said the easiest way to make a million dollars in the United States is start a religion. And he did. And that religion is being exposed on primetime TV by Leah Remini on the A&E channel. And it needs to be exposed because it has destroyed many, many lives with false promises. Now, this is what the man of God is to do. He is to be a man of high character. That's how you could qualify or categorize these um, attributes. Now, there's going to be six positives. They're very self-explanatory. Look at verse 8. He's to be hospitable. He opens his heart and his home to strangers and to those in the body. He's to love what is good. He loves charity, good causes, virtue. He promotes good for others. Three, he's to be sensible. That means sober-minded. He's rational, restrained, disciplined, wise, and prudent. Number four, verse eight, he's to be just. He's to be a man who lives an upright life in accordance with God's laws. Uh, number five, he's to be devout. Devout means consecrated and committed to the things of God. Uh, last one in verse 8, self-controlled is obvious. He has restraint. This is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And then look at verse 9, final verse for uh, this afternoon. He's to hold fast the faithful word, verse 9, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to 
may, may be able both to exhort, parakaleo is the Greek word, it can mean encourage or, or exhortation, in sound doctrine, the word sound is where we get hygienic, healthy doctrine, and to refute, the idea of refute is to rebuke and correct those who contradict. By the way, the word refute, when you look it up in Greek, has the idea of expose false teaching. Now, there are a lot of people in the body of Christ that the moment that you say anything about a false teacher get upset. They think that should not be happening. However, folks, can I just submit to you, the Bible actually commands it. It it makes it clear that after the characteristics of a man's character are laid out, the primary calling of a pastor, elder, overseer in the church is a teaching ministry. By virtue of the word of God, the teacher, pastor, elder is able to encourage the body and even exhort them to love and good deeds and to expose false doctrine. Now you guys know I don't spend a lot of time up here naming names or exposing false doctrine. In many cases I don't have to because I think you guys are so familiar with the truth that if you heard a liar preaching, you would know. Amen? I'm trying to get you so familiar with the real that if a counterfeit looms on the horizon, you would know it instantaneously. That's the work of the ministry. I don't want you to get sucked into some false teacher. So sometimes I'll say something hard. It may be hard for some people to hear. And I realized some years ago, the ministry is not a popularity contest. Uh, A few weeks back, we had a radio listener call the church. My wife was in the office. I was out here preaching. Praise God, my wife answered this phone call. And the lady was extremely upset with Pastor Michael. And my wife couldn't get a word in edgewise, but she happened to pick up the phone. Ah, whoever that was preaching on the radio, my husband. Uh, well, he said something about our group, and I don't like what he said. My wife couldn't get a word in edgewise. I was so grateful that she answered the phone and not me. Anyway, after it, it ended bad, that was a joke, but it was, I guess it was a poor one. But anyway, after the phone call ended, you know, I think my wife had to hang, finally hang up on the lady. She called back and left about seven messages on the answering machine. How dare him call out our group? We're well-meaning, we're sincere. Look, if sincerity was the test of true faith, then we wouldn't worry about passages like this. All we'd say is, are you sincere about what you believe? Because if you're sincere, that's all that really matters. That's our culture, right? Just if you're sincere, brother. So let's use an illustration. Let's say that someone sincerely believed that they could fly. Just a little pixie dust is all you need. I can fly, I can fly, I can fly. So they go to the top of the Empire State Building and they say, I have faith, I can fly. Go ahead and sprinkle some of that dust on me. All right, I'm ready. And they did a a half gainer off the Empire State Building. There's a, a greater law in effect. It's called gravity. And I don't care how hard you believe in your powers of flight, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. And if you put your faith in the wrong thing, I don't care how sincere you are, it's not going to save you. Over and over again, the God of the Bible compares himself to the idols of the people and says, call upon them in your emergency. Call upon them when you're in trouble. See if they can predict the future. You know, next time you're in trouble, in fact, just go ahead and depend on them. See how good they deliver you. You see, false gods are impotent to save you. That's why the message of the gospel must be preached accurately and false doctrine must be exposed and refuted by good arguments. Why? For the sake of the cause and for the sake of the fact that we want to make sure people know the true Christ and are saved. 
Amen? This is the job of the church. This is what an overseer is supposed to do. I don't have to guess at my job description. Praise God. I already know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to give my attention to the public reading of Scripture and to teach the Word of God and cut it straight so that the church can be on the right path. Amen? And I'm not the only one doing it. There's a collective group of elders doing it at this church. And of course, all these faithful men that we've appreciated so much over the years, would you pray for them more? Would you pray for these men that are in pulpits? And would you pray for those who, frankly, for whatever reason, are bunting when they should be taking full swings? For the sake of filling pews and appeasing people, they don't preach the truth, they don't go through the Bible. That doesn't do anybody any good. Look, I hope even that person that was mad at me that's in a cult right now, maybe it made her think. If I never would have said anything, if I would have told her she was okay, she may not be revisiting what she believes. But I'm hoping she will, even if she has to be mad at me, so that she would embrace the truth and that the truth would set her free. Amen? Sometimes our doctor tells us stuff and we don't like it. You might say, you need to stop eating Twinkies, man. But why? Well, because it's messing you up. Okay? Now, your doctor could tell you you're okay. <laughs> Sorry about the Twinkie analogy, but anyway. But it's not going to help you. Now, if he tells you the truth and you amend your ways, what can happen? You can benefit from it. The gospel message matters. Whole households were being undermined. You know, I watch some of the destruction that happens because of false teaching inside and outside the church. And you don't hear these groups talk a lot about their back doors, but people who have been given false promises about healing and wealth and, and health and all this stuff, their back door is pretty wide. Those people don't typically get interviewed by those church leaders. A lot of false promises are made in the name of Christ. Look, we need to be on track with the truth, and if we, if we do that, I think God will keep us where we need to be. John Calvin said it well. I leave you with this. A pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able to both rule or shepherd those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. After all, Jesus warned of false prophets and uh, wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. And he said, beware, watch out. And so we need to do the same as shepherds. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful congregation. I want to praise you for their passion for the truth. They don't want to compromise. They're hungry to know what you say about these matters. And, and Lord, we want to preach it straight. We, we don't want to dilute the truth because the truth is what strengthens. It saves us. It strengthens us. It sanctifies us. Thank you that the truth includes grace that we cannot ever exhaust because you know, when we look at some of these characteristics, these are high, this is a high calling, Lord. You know, Paul even said, who's adequate for these things? Certainly not I. But we become more than conquerors through him who loved us. And wherever the folks are today that are in this room or listening to my voice, Lord, you know where they might need some extra grace, where they may even need a push to step up and get their house in order and see what you want to do with the gifts that you've given to them. You gave them gifts for a reason, not just to have a gift, but to use it, to edify the body, to reach out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just do a work, a new work in our hearts, perhaps, even a refreshing work in some hearts.
Help us to align our lives with the one that we call shepherd, Savior, God, and Lord. We just want to express our love to you in these moments, Lord, as we close this service. May you meet people where they are. May you hear their cries. May you help them discern their calling. Would you help the men and women of this congregation that desire so much to serve you, Lord, to be hearing your voice and following you. We just want to say we love you and we praise you. And with your head and heart bowed, if you've not met this good shepherd, you feel like you have no purpose. You feel like you're floundering. He will give you purpose. He'll give you a new beginning and a clear call that he's always had for you, but you need to come to know him. You need to repent. The Bible just says, do a 180, turn away from your sin. It's something like this. And pray it if it's you. Jesus, save me. I believe you're the good shepherd. I repent of my sin. Please forgive me. I want to go in your direction. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Be my Lord and be my Savior and change me from the inside out. Lord, would you be speaking life and encouragement to souls who need it today? Direction to those who are questioning which way to go and what to do at this point. Some people are at forks in the road. And they need a push. They need an illuminated door. Would you do that for those who may be in need of that? And may you bless this precious congregation with a passion for the gospel, I pray. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen.